0: I'm Nina Velado
1: And I'm Caleb Isley. This is How the Church Works. A deep dive into the inner workings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and why you should care.
0: In this episode, we're continuing the conversation about Adventism and race in North America. Adventism's roots in abolitionism, what changed, and why we still have work to do. Part two. If you haven't listened to part one yet, Please do. After the Civil War, some Adventists focused their energy from the abolition of slavery to the Southern work, ministering to the now free Black population. Although the Church did not have a cohesive strategy for the Southern work, pretty soon there were a lot of Black Adventists.
1: The first ordained black Adventist pastor was Charles Marshall Kinney. Born into slavery in 1855, he heard Ellen White and J.N. Loughborough, another Adventist pioneer, speak in Reno, Nevada in 1878. Kinney became an Adventist later that year and attended what is now Pacific Union College in the 1880s. In 1888, he moved to St. Louis, preaching and ministering to the black community. There was one Adventist church there at the time, and as Kenny was successful in evangelizing the Black community to the Adventist message, the demographics of the church changed.
0: Another prominent early Black Adventist pastor was Louis Chief. Chief had become an Adventist after attending the Battle Creek Sanitarium in the 1890s. He quickly received the call to ministry, and in 1902, was tasked by then-G.C. President A.G. Daniels to hold evangelistic meetings in Washington, D.C. with J.S. Washburn, who was white. As a result of Sheaf's preaching, 75 people joined the church and First Seventh-day Adventist Church was formed. This is the same church that Frederick Douglass's daughter attended until she died in 1906.
1: While both of these churches could have been amazing examples of unity and racial reconciliation, they weren't. Both of these congregations' white adherents were so bothered by the presence of black people in the church that it caused a massive amount of conflict.
0: The church in St. Louis, unsettled by the changing demographics of the congregation, reacted negatively toward black people who tried to attend. Kinney left to do work in Kentucky. But the sting of the racism experienced there stayed with him. When Ellen White visited the church herself after Kinney left, she was so disturbed by the racism she witnessed that she was compelled to write to the General Conference leadership, Our Duty to the Colored People, which sternly called on churches and leaders to treat Black attendees with dignity and respect.
1: In Washington, D.C., Sheaf's congregation split. Many of the white members left to form their own church called the Second Seventh-day Adventist Church, and eventually Sheaf left Seventh-day Adventism altogether. He was disillusioned by the racism experienced by the Black members. Washburn, the white pastor of the recently split First Church, later wrote a candid letter to the GC president, and it revealed that he himself harbored racist ideas toward both the black congregants and chiefs' leadership.
0: Even though Adventism in its very DNA was abolitionist and trying its best to be anti-racist, with the cultural pull of racism and resentment, a sentiment that was growing daily in the aftermath of a failed reconstruction, it struggled. More and more people were being converted to Adventism. Not just the recently freed black people and abolitionists, but white people from both North and South who were entrenched in racist cultural norms.
2: As the church developed and we became more sophisticated, we find that America was getting more and more
0: racist. We spoke with Pedrito Maynard-Reed in our last episode, part one.
2: Jim Crow laws were coming in. They were lynching Blacks and Adventists became part of that fundamentalist event, um, type of Christianity down south. They started to treat Blacks just like in the days of slavery.
0: Integrated Adventist churches became increasingly rare. They also became more dangerous. Churches were threatened by angry mobs, and Black congregants could not worship without facing risks to their safety or experiencing prejudice from within the pews. Adventist missionaries in the South faced increased danger to the point that some returned to the North. Other ministers began to be swayed toward the, quote, Southern rhetoric.
1: And this is why just four years after Ellen White admonished general conference leaders that Black Adventists should not be excluded from places of worship, she said this,
3: In regard to white and colored people worshiping in the same building, this cannot be followed as a general custom with profit to either party, especially in the South. The best thing will be to provide the colored people who accept the truth with places of worship of their own, in which they can carry on their services by themselves, Let them understand that this plan is to be followed until the Lord shows us a better way.
0: A better way. As author Dr. Calvin Rock puts it, after Ellen White died, the meaning of a better way morphed from when we figure out a better approach to when Jesus comes. The church quickly changed from taking on active roles to dismantle systems of oppression in the world around them to stepping away from issues of justice.
3: Adventism goes from being a church that's abolitionist, very activist, it's against slavery. I mean, it's not just sit in your home. Um, Many of our pioneers were participants on the Underground Railroad. Very much of a certain outlook. And we get to the point in the early 20th century by the early 1940s where we have to have separate black and white conferences. We have a black and white sections of the cafeteria at the General Conference, most of our schools, black and white, right? Michael Campbell is a professor of
1: religion at Southwestern Adventist University. Michael has done some deep diving into obscure Adventist history, and one of the things he's found in his research is that in the early 20th century, Adventism started to align itself more with a newly emergent theological approach, fundamentalism.
3: So how do we go from being an abolitionist church to becoming basically a church that had embraced this racist ideology? And fundamentalism, I think, is the really the key answer because they were so afraid of the modernists who were promoting a social gospel that they were willing to push themselves, pull themselves back from their activist stance. And in the 1920s, you start seeing some of those that are really embracing this inerrant, narrow, rigid way of interpreting Ellen White in fact, we have one Adventist author, A.W. Spaulding, pushing for a black and white heaven, which to me seems you know preposterous, but they're buying into that fundamentalist rhetoric and they're actually republishing a lot of this fundamentalist rhetoric. The most extreme version of this is some Adventists in the 1920s that were promoting the Ku Klux Klan.
0: This is the context of Black Adventism's pleas for support from the Adventist Church, in the early and mid 20th century. As the Adventist church became more institutional, it began to ignore some of the more specific needs among the black Adventist community in Jim Crow America. Although general conference leadership seemed a sympathetic listener to the mission that the black Adventist leaders spoke about, it was almost always slow to act.
1: Black Adventist leaders had pleaded for a specific department in the General Conference that would provide support and resources for Black Adventist pastors and leaders in the field for years before it became a reality in 1909. It took another nine years for the quote, Negro department, as it was known at the time, to get its first Black director, W.H. Green. Before Green, the department had been led by a succession of three white men.
0: After only 10 years at his post, Green died from exhaustion due to an intense travel schedule. A reality of being one of the only institutional supports for Black Adventism's growing congregations. He literally worked himself to death.
1: On July 16, 1915, Ellen White died at age 87. Without the voice of its prophet, Adventism struggled to look at the growing problems of the present and into the future.
4: Ellen White has just died. She is no longer able to speak out for the oppressed. And and most Adventists are now thoroughly conservative.
0: We spoke with historian Kevin Burton in our last episode, too
4: and i mean that on social issues like race and gender. and so if i was talking about gender with you too we could sh- i could talk about how we had several we had uh, well over 100 at least uh, avonnes women in leadership positions in 1915 when ellen dies. and uh, because of shifting views uh, on gender we start to say a woman can't preach or teach or have any kind of authority over men even though ellen white did in her lifetime. we changed doctrine there and by 1940 we have absolutely zero women who are leaders in the church. By the early 20th century, another factor that's changing is Adventists are wanting to become evangelicals again. And so they they can, they can insist that they are going to be, this is the fundamentalist era where uh, conservative evangelicals are going to, to lash out against Darwinianism and higher criticism of the Bible. However, uh, as we're doing so, we try to side totally with the fundamentalists and they are very conservative on all social issues and a whole host of other things. And so our leaders are starting to say, we are the fundamentalists of the fundamentalists. They are really serious about this. We are going to show that we are the absolute best fundamentalists there are. And that really reflects our change. As we aligned back with evangelicalism, which has always been conservative on issues of race and gender, then we adopted those kinds of things in the process And we became conservative in those ways as well, where we had been radical before. So much so that on race, we had been part of the abolitionist movement, which was never more than 2% of America's northern population. But by the time you get to the 1960s and they're dealing with segregation, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is one of the very last Christian denominations to desegregate.
0: The early 1900s was a season of change for the Adventist Church, for a variety of reasons.
1: And as questions about the inspiration and role of Scripture, fueled by the rise of Darwinism and theistic evolution, embroiled the Christian community, Adventism's high view of Scripture slowly pulled it toward fundamentalism, that new subset of evangelicalism, which, again, had not only largely not been abolitionist, but had been pro slavery and upheld slavery as a God given institution.
0: Despite this, Black membership was growing, but it lacked the structural and institutional support and the resources given to other areas of the church. Unequal and unfair pay, inadequate representation or exclusion from committees and constituency meetings, and exclusion from church administrative and leadership positions were common practice. Discouraged and angry, some left. Those who did stay, believed that there was a place for them within the Adventist church and that they needed to pave a new path for themselves within it.
2: And that got so bad that blacks were rising up and they were saying, we just can't tolerate that. You're not even giving us a chance to be part of the church. We want our own conferences. We want to be able to do our own thing because you have treated us horribly.
0: The organized push to establish regional conferences, at the time called colored conferences, began in the early 1920s, the same time as the rise of the KKK and fundamentalism in America, and after the deadly red summer of 1919, when roving attacks by white supremacists on black communities across US cities led to hundreds of deaths.
1: In Dr. Calvin Rock's book, Protest and Progress, he says that the Adventist church failed to address the, quote, racial tensions and disparities of the era because, quote, it functioned in strict obedience to the patently discriminatory laws of the land. The church believed that issues of civil and social justice were issues for civil authorities to figure out.
0: But these racial tensions and disparities were not just felt outside the church. Claude Barnett, the journalist and publisher of a nationally syndicated Black news service, was in constant contact with Seventh-day Adventist leaders because he had been told of numerous instances of racial inequalities and segregation on Adventist campuses, like Andrews University.
5: How can your denomination fulfill its worldwide mission program, which I have seen outlined in your Harvest Gathering pamphlet, and close your school to a minority group such as the Negro race.
2: J.K. Humphrey. There was this man in New York, um, a Jamaican, but he and Jamaicans are very strong people and they don't tolerate nonsense. And he says, we need to have our own organization. They are not including us. In, in, in the conferences. They are not including us in the work. We can't go to hospitals and get treatment.
0: Perhaps one of the most infamous examples of this is the story of Lucy Bayard in late 1943.
2: And there was this woman, Lucille Bayard, that went to Washington Adventist Hospital And uh, when they found out that she was black, they sent her up to the hospital uh, further up the road and, uh, you know, to get treatment. And um, she died ultimately, which if she had gotten the treatment earlier, she would have um, would have lived.
1: She was a black Adventist woman from New York and dying of cancer. And she wanted to be treated in an Adventist sanitarium. Sanitariums in many ways were more like a medical resort. Patients would socialize and do activities together in between treatments, and Lucy wanted to spend her treatment amongst fellow Adventists. An Adventist pastor in Brooklyn arranged for her to attend an Adventist sanitarium in Maryland. But when she arrived, she experienced heartbreak.
0: Upon arrival, she and her husband were informed that due to Maryland's segregation laws, They could not be in the same area as white patients the hospital arranged for her to be treated down the road at a black hospital the freedman's hospital and while being treated there she quickly withered away devastated that she had been kept from her adventist brethren simply because of the color of her skin
2: and the blacks were so upset that we can't go to the Adventist hospital. We can't get any position or be listened to in our work. We need our own conference. We need to run our own thing. So they finally, the general conference, um, the North American division was pushed into having black administered conference. And we need to get that very clearly. It's not black conference for only black people. It's a conference where the administration and the worldview of African-Americans can be highlighted.
1: Lucille's death and Adventist leadership's inadequate response was the final catalyst for an organized and powerful protest movement by Black Adventists, the Committee for the Advancement of the Worldwide Work Among Seventh-day Adventists. Its first meeting was in the back of a bookstore and included a mix of influential Black Adventist men and women including Eva Dykes, the very first African-American woman to receive a Ph.D. in the United States.
0: The committee published a document called Shall the Four Freedoms Function Among Seventh-day Adventists? which detailed the many structural wrongs the Adventist church had committed against its Black congregants, especially school segregation, and denial of administrative voice.
2: And that culture can drive the the, the evangelism and the mission of the church, because white people don't understand black people. They've kept them out. So when they made decisions, it wasn't for our benefit. So they finally, the general conference said, well, you know, maybe the best thing to do is to have your own conference. And they allowed them to have the conference, the first one being in Chicago. So they're still part of the union, but there are churches all across the different states that come together to make a regional conference where their worldview and their mission and the way they think and know they will grow dominates uh, rather than they being a minority and always being voted down. And the church, because of that,
1: grew. On April 10, 1944, the General Conference Executive Meeting approved a recommendation for, quote, Colored conferences within unions with large Black Adventist membership. And these conferences would be administered by Black leaders.
6: So what fostered the establishment of Black conferences is that the United States of America had boundary-maintaining mechanisms that kept the races from associating, even if they wanted to,
0: this is Dr. Calvin B. Rock. We've quoted his book several times throughout this episode because, quite frankly, in our opinion, he is one of the most formidable voices in Adventism. He is a historian, pastor, former university president, and retired General Conference vice president. He served the church for over 60 years and has deep roots in the Adventist history we've talked about in this episode.
6: I was uh, reared by a single mother, whose mother, by the way, at a little john, Bradford, was one of the original students at Oakwood College in 1896.
1: Oakwood University is a historically black university run by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In 1895, Oakwood had been commissioned by the General Conference as a school with the specific mission to minister to African-American youth. In Huntsville, Alabama, on land that had once been a plantation fueled by slave labor, now stood the educational gateway to the future for young Black Adventists. Dr. Rock's grandmother was in the inaugural class.
6: Prior to that, she had been baptized as a result of the preaching of Edson White and the Morning Star boat back in 1894, 1895. So the young girl of 14, she accepted the message. And my family has been Adventist from there until uh, today.
0: Talk about a legacy.
1: Dr. Rock experienced the racism of the Jim Crow South firsthand.
6: At age 18, I left Los Angeles to go to Oakwood, got into Texas and the driver stopped the car on the bus on some lonely road and said, young man, you have to go to the back. And I said, I'm not going to the back. I paid my money like everybody else. And he said, if you don't go to the back, I'm calling the police. And there I was on a lonely road in some woe-begotten Texas byway, knowing that if I didn't get in the back, I could have been thrown in jail and lynched like anybody else. So I got up and went to the back. But I must tell you, I was very angry. I was very angry.
1: And he was a teenager when the regional conferences were formed.
6: Regional conferences are local conferences specifically organized to enhance ministry in the Black community and they are staffed by African American leadership the regional conference function they both function the same way only the regional conference says we're doing this because it maximizes evangelism and mission in the black community and it eliminates a lot of the hoops through which Black ministers and other workers had to go before they were organized in order to be effective.
0: The recent events of the last several years, in particular, the summer of 2020, has forced Adventism to put a microscope to our structures and practices. Many people hear the story of Lucy Bayard and the segregation that was present in Adventism in the 40s, and assume regional conferences are a symbol Of racism persevering.
1: So we've noticed a rise in the question Are regional conferences necessary today? Or are they ancient relics of a racist past? Or even, does having regional conferences promote and perpetuate racism and segregation in the 21st
6: century?
0: But Dr. Rock says it's much more complex than separation equals bad, integration equals good.
6: They were responding to racism. And they had a choice either to let people in the black community live and die without a knowledge of the second coming of Christ or establish a form that would take the word to them. So it's not racist for them to establish. They didn't run off and do it and break away. It was voted by the church. In fact, it was promoted by the president of the church at that time. Elder McElhaney, and his secretary, Elder Spicer, these two good white brethren said, you need to do something to get the gospel to your people. It wasn't racist. Elder McElhaney wasn't a racist. He was just a kind and perceptive leader who saw something that needed to be done for this people. There's nothing racist about that. Racism says, don't you come near me. Racism says, I don't like you. Racism is segregationist. Racism says, you stay out of here. That was never a part of the regional conference establishment.
1: One thing we need to understand is that regional conferences are not just for Black Adventists. Though regional conferences, by nature of their origins and construction, are especially attuned to the needs of communities of color, Men and women of all backgrounds, ethnicities, and races are welcome in both state and regional conferences as administrators, pastors, and
0: as members. Dr. Rock says we still need regional conferences because we, as a country and as a church, are still working on seeing and meeting the needs of the communities around us.
6: The real question is not why do we have regional conferences, the question is. Why does Black America, or why does any hardwired, large, flourishing minority need modified this self-determination in order to have its culture and its program succeed? Why? Why do we need a caucus in the Senate of the United States? Why do we need that? The question is not why do we need a Black conference. The question is why does a Black minority with its distinguished culture and folkways and mores and history, why does the people who have been suffering under boundary-maintaining mechanisms in America for 400 years, boundary-maintaining mechanisms in housing, employment, boundary-maintaining mechanisms in education, boundary-maintaining mechanisms in in sports and every other faucet of this society, every institution of America. Why do these people need something special to help them to, to promote their political and their social and their religious needs? Why? Because they're different. It's a different culture. And if you're going to take away Black conferences, are you going to take away Oakwood? Are we going to take away Breath of Life, the TV program? Are we Are going to do it with The Message Magazine?
1: Regional conferences are a powerful mechanism for the gospel to be preached to people that are not always reached with Adventism's other structures. And the blueprint that Black Adventist leadership created through regional conferences, something Dr. Rock calls indigenous leadership, is used to great success with many communities within the US.
0: In any given city, you might find Korean, Russian, Indonesian, Spanish-speaking churches, and many others. These are present in both state and regional conferences. And although the West Coast does not have regional conferences, it does have structures within state conferences with administrators and pastors that are part of the communities in which they serve. This is because of the work of Black Adventist leadership and regional conferences.
6: And today, the regional conferences have The last time I counted, 140 churches that were Spanish, Hispanic, Caucasian, Portuguese, Puerto Rican. The regional conferences have all kinds of churches. And they've got all kinds of members. The proof is in the pudding, as grandmother used to say. And it's not racist. It's missiological. A pastor is not only the shepherd for the individual congregation. The pastor is a shepherd for the whole community. As a pastor, I don't go to my church just to take care of those people. I have to influence and flavor and try to become acceptable to the whole community. And indigenous leadership has made the difference in that function.
1: This brings us to today. Even when we look at the history of Adventism's abolition in the 19th century and its need for the regional conferences in the 20th century, you might say, what does that have to do with now? The world is different.
0: One thing we've often heard living within the Adventist bubble is that Adventists pride themselves on being apolitical. In fact, we often discourage people from taking stands on issues seen as political due to our theology about separation of church and state, and our desire to make the gospel appealing to all. So
5: Adventists typically believe in the separation of church and state. That thinking is the notion that the church should not determine what the state is doing, and the state should not determine what the church should do.
1: Claudia Allen is an outreach coordinator for the Howard County Government Office of Human Rights and Equity in Columbia, Maryland. She previously worked for Message Magazine, the leading publication of the Black Adventist Voice since 1934. As an international speaker on race, faith, and justice, she's working on her first book, Activate, Finding the Savior in Social
5: Justice. And she's been a personal hero of mine for a while. There should be a separation of church and state particularly we're thinking about with legislation, that is oftentimes interpreted as we don't talk about voting, we don't talk about politics, we don't talk about presidents,
0: we don't talk about laws, we don't talk about any of that. But if we've learned anything from working on this episode, it's that our early church was far from apolitical. Rather, they were apartisan.
3: The relationship of politics to the church and the wider culture has always been a very uh, sticky thing. You know, how do we relate? This is Michael Campbell again. And I see that as our, the viewpoint of our pioneers. You know, they were actually very political, very activist. In fact, much more so. Uh, recent research suggests that our early pioneers were more activists than the general population, more political. But not political in the sense, you know, Ellen White, she has some very interesting counsel, basically admonishing church members. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but the idea being don't be political for the sake of being political. But when there are issues that are informed by our faith, for example, race relations, where because of our values, we need to be willing to speak up against the wider culture and political positions happening in our country a good example of that is the fugitive slave law in 1850. Ellen White says, it's wrong. We should not return slaves to the South. We should disobey. So we're to be good citizens, you know, uh, as Paul says in Romans, and to obey the government whenever possible, except when it conflicts with our core biblical convictions. Uh, We see that with the temperance movement. In fact, Ellen White's so passionate about temperance. She actually goes and lines up a a wagon load of church members on Sabbath morning, takes them down to the polls to vote, right? So you don't usually see that image of Ellen White because, you know, we like to quote her quotes about not being political, but she was very political, but only when it was based and informed by biblical convictions.
0: This didn't go away. After the reform movements of the 19th and 20th centuries died down, although Adventists were discouraged from participating in the civil rights marches, anti-war protests in the 1960s, they were active in other causes.
6: There were a thousand of them clean-cut, and they walked for nine miles. The protest was directed at cigarettes. The anti-tobacco hike went from the campus of Pacific Union College to the town of St. Helena. The college is run by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which does not favor smoking or drinking, for that matter.
1: On April 11th, 1969, students at Pacific Union College led a nine-mile march from the PUC campus in Angwin, California, to St. Helena protesting against smoking and big tobacco. Keep in mind, this is right in the middle of the tobacco culture war.
0: This was only 15 years after a committee made up of big tobacco companies released a report that they did not believe cigarettes posed health risks and only four years after cigarettes were federally mandated to include health warning labels for the first time. A former tobacco advertising executive spoke at the rally. It's kind of hard to understand the audio recording here, so we'll just read it. Though it seemed impossible to defeat the cadre of hardened men who would kill for profit by their callous promotion of cigarettes, Today, you have taken many steps in the direction of these men and these men's undoing. I believe today, cigarette consumption will be controlled and will be reduced. Millions of people will not die prematurely. They will live longer, happier, and healthier lives.
1: The health message is foundational to Adventist identity. And the students believed that because of this, They needed to use their voice, not only because they believed they were right, but also because they believed that what they had to say could improve people's lives.
0: In 2019, the Seventh-day Adventist Church revised its guidelines and statements of belief on abortion, from a more nuanced stance to one that aligns with more traditionally pro-life perspectives.
1: In the year 2000... When a proposition that affirmed marriage as between one man and one woman was on the ballot in California, the Pacific Union Recorder published this note from their religious liberty director. It said, We need not sit on the sidelines on this issue, assuring ourselves that Adventists avoid political issues. We can assist in efforts to educate our neighbors and to get the word out, as well as urging our own members to vote.
0: Religious liberty. Abortion and LGBTQ plus rights are arguably some of the most politicized issues in America today. Yet, as a church, we don't stay away from them.
5: I have always felt like the Adventist church is selectively political. Because it is not that the Adventist church does not engage in politics or that the Adventist church doesn't care about legislation. It's that the Adventist church only cares about the legislation that impacts it. So because Adventism is predominantly run by white American or white European men, their greatest fear of persecution is Sunday blue law. So that's what they talk about all the time. I'm afraid of the day where they will burn my Bibles and I will not be able to go into the house of the Lord. But then when you talk to a Japanese Adventist who was Adventist in California when the U.S. started doing internment camps, or how about talking to a black Adventist who's been in America since the institution of the church and the emancipation of of slaves in 1863, or you talk to Hispanic and Latino Adventists Our engagement with and experience with persecution is much different. And so our interest in politics is much different because I am systemically and consistently being disenfranchised by local and federal governments.
1: There are issues that Adventists have historically seen as going beyond just politics. They're about human beings and God's biblical mandates of equality, taking care of ourselves and taking care of our world, and those are issues that we still face today.
4: There's a need to be an abolitionist to this day. There are millions of people that are enslaved illegally. The most important thing I would say now is to understand our Adventist pioneers' radicalness when it came to issues that are important to this day, like race. And gender. Whenever we started our church, we tried to rock the boat because we believed that other Christians didn't have it right. And that didn't just mean theology, it didn't just mean our approach to scripture. It was not just the fact that we had a female prophet and, like, no one else can claim that (laughs) except for the Christian scientists. And so it's not just that, but it's also social issues. We were willing to speak out and act out against the norm. And that is critical. And that is still vital for us today because we are the most racially diverse religion in America. Even if we weren't, it's vitally important because we claim that the message we have is supposed to go to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And even if we didn't claim that, people are people. No matter how you slice it or dice it, there is no excuse for Seventh-day Adventists. This stuff I think is vital because I think it is corrective to some major things that, that need to change. And I think that as people hear this, they realize that we have a relevant message for today. Our pioneers are relevant. If we keep them in their context, look at the principles that they were advocating for, those are principles that are vital to our heritage, to the present, and to the gospel.
0: We've often heard that political issues don't belong in certain places keep politics out of sports, keep it out of movies, off the Thanksgiving table, keep politics out of church. What do we really mean when we say this? It's probably that we don't like to be confronted about uncomfortable truths of the society we live in, of the society that some of us thrive in.
1: Working on this podcast, we've seen that Adventists don't stand on the sidelines on issues that are important to them. And this is exactly what being a prophetic voice was and is all about.
2: But the churches that are part of the status quo will not want to talk about those social justice issues. Early Adventists were not part of the status quo and was prepared to challenge them. And black churches are like that. The white churches are basically Western in their orientation and in their lifestyle and in their philosophy, which is individualistic and which is as a dichotomy between soul and body, mind and spirit. And one is higher and the other one is lower. So your body and your social is secondary to your mind and your soul and your spiritual. So when you come to church and do church things, it should only be the spiritual aspect. The worldview of Eastern, which would be Africa, Asia, um, the Americas, uh, indigenous Americas, uh, would be that we are a whole person. A person's well-being, their social world is just as important as their spiritual world. As a matter of fact, you cannot separate them, which is Adventism, you know. We go and we preach that we, the body is not separate from the soul. When mm. you die, your soul don't go off to some heaven and go back to God. Your soul is part of you, who you are. Because we believe in loving the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The physical, the mental, the social, the spiritual is all one. So we cannot separate things like politics and social well-being from this spiritual life. So you find Blacks. Whose roots are African and Eastern, you find the Bible, which is roots, is Eastern. You remember now Palestine is just above Africa. So Jesus thought more Eastern. And that's why the Bible is holistic. When the Christianity went to Europe, we became more Western and we could make that dichotomy between the worldview of spirituality and the worldview of social well-being. And when they clash, we get into our corner of this is not spiritual, that's political. Our church, the black church, has always been more holistic and therefore could preach out against these uh, social issues while the white church holds back because they could simply say this is not spiritual.
1: Every person has a compass that they use to navigate through their mission and their life. Some compasses point toward the community, our neighbors, and some compasses point back to ourselves. Christianity, and Adventism specifically, has both. Love your neighbor comes first, but as yourself follows after it. Ellen White called this Christ's method alone, ministering to the whole person, both their spiritual and their physical needs.
0: Shoot. Don't shoot. Don't shoot.
7: Don't
0: shoot. On Juneteenth, 2020, Caleb, Heather, and I marched with two of the Black Adventist churches in Portland, Oregon, Sharon, SDA Church, and Your Bible Speaks, to protest the injustices done to Ahmad Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and countless others. As the church congregation moved outside of their building and into the streets, the community watched as the church began to live out its mission. And as we marched, the movement grew as neighbors came out of their houses and joined us. That is church.
1: There's something that we often miss when we stay within the confines of our walls. There's a missing element to church when we set boundaries of what is holy and spiritual and what isn't. Racism is thriving in our country and in our church. And as the body of Christ, we shouldn't let one group of people carry all the weight of it. That's how our church should work.
0: We focused a lot on North America in this episode, because the necessity of regional conferences was something born out of North America's culture and influence. But as you know, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is a global church, and the problem is a global problem. The
1: Seventh-day Adventist Church in Germany was largely supportive of the Nazi party, and had Nazi members in leadership for several years after the end of World War II, until the government had to ask for them to be removed. During the Rwandan genocide in 1994, approximately 10,000 Adventists lost their lives, and sometimes it was at the hands of other Adventists. There are some painful realities we need to face as a people.
5: Racial history with Adventism literally touches all of the continents in some way, shape or form. And when we when we try to confine the racial reconciliation conversation to North America, that is how the institution is capable of constantly arguing that this is not an issue that matters. It's not an issue that should be dealt with. It has nothing to do with missions. It has nothing to do with the overall goal of evangelizing and saving the world. So long as the Adventist Church sees reconciliation as a black um, as a heal black America issue, because that's how they really see it. Every time we think talk about race, every time we talk about racism, it's like, okay, how do we heal Black America? Then they will continue to feel as though it is insignificant, it is only when we show the global impact of racism and the Adventist church's engagement with racism on multiple continents, and therefore the need for racial reconciliation within the Adventist church in several countries, that we will then be able to have any kind of fruitful structural change. So what do we do?
1: So often when we learn of injustices happening within our own walls and the world around us, it can feel overwhelming. How can we stand against principalities and powers Can we, as human beings, do anything to fix these issues? Or can we do nothing but just wait for a better way, Jesus' return?
0: If we've learned anything from our church mothers and fathers is that we can do something. When the early Adventist pioneers saw injustice, clarified for them through scripture and God's guidance, they didn't just talk about it, they did something. The laity underestimate their power.
5: The church is empowered and controlled by the laity. Whatever we want to have happen in the church, we have the influence to make a change. That's the best way I can put that without getting in trouble. So that... And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about uh, storming the general conference, all right? <laughs> However, <laughs> there are power in numbers, there's influence in numbers. And so I think that if, if we began to perceive once again the truth of the fact that the pastors are servants to the laity and the conference leaders are servants to the laity and the union and the division and the general conference are all ministers who are serving the laity, then if the laity say, we are not being served right now, you ultimately force all of those people to wrestle with having to change their method, change the way they are serving you. And if racial reconciliation and racial justice is a fundamental thing for you. And you feel like you are not being spiritually served unless all these levels of the church begin to deal with, address, respond to, and serve for this issue. Then across racial lines, across languages, across countries, the laity needs to begin to come together and say, we are not being served we are not being ministered to, and we need
0: you all to address this. The last push for regional conferences to be formed was in the late 1990s by Black Adventist leaders in Southeastern California.
1: This means that in very recent memory, a large group of Adventists voiced the reality that the needs of their communities were not being heard or understood by larger church leadership enough that it was stunting the work within their community.
0: We need to have hard conversations and we need to listen. Within our church, when a group voices concerns that they are not being supported or heard by a church that claims to be a prophetic movement, whether they are a certain ethnicity, gender, race, or age, we need to listen and not repeat the mistakes of the past. We went over a lot today, so we've curated a list of resources in our show notes and, of course, by Protest in Progress linked in our show notes.
1: Check it all out at HowTheChurchWorks.com.
0: Next time on How the Church Works.
6: I think one of the things that we can do is simplify the system. I uh, There are a lot of people who are in agreement that we've we've made the system too complex by the all of the up and down stuff.
0: We talk about something that makes the world and the church Go Round
7: Money. How the Church Works is hosted by Nina Velado and Kayla Beisley. Thank you to our guests this week Dr. Calvin Rock, Claudia Allen, Kevin Burton. Pedrito Maynard-Reed, and Michael Campbell. You can find bonus content for this episode on our website, howthechurchworks.com. And especially this week and last week, we really encourage you to check out that bonus content. This episode was written by Nina Vallado and me, Heather Moore, and it was produced by Heather Moore. All episodes are edited and mixed by the multi-talented Nina Vallado. Thank you to Michael Campbell for reviewing and fact-checking our episodes. Our logo design is by Brittany Colby, and our website and social media is by Chelsea Ernina. Thank you to Stephen Hussett, our tech and equipment expert. The show is executive produced by Adam Fenner, Heather Moore, Kayla Isley, and Nina Vallado. Special thanks to the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. If you'd like to send us an email, we'd love to read it. Email us at hello at howthechurchworks.com.